This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now, Luther, as you know, affirmed the real presence of Christ, but he did reject transubstantiation. You know, of course, what that is. That in terms of the elements... When the words of consecration are uttered by the priest, a miracle happens. And the bread and the wine, in terms of its substance, turns into literally the blood and the body of Jesus. On the outside, the, the external presentation of that, of course, it still looks like bread and wine. But a miracle takes place there. And so there is a real Christ is not, Christ is there. He felt that that was unsubstantiated and that it was. Um, but it is uh, based on John 6, 53 58. I mean, so it's not simply a practice that comes out of thin air, but it's based upon, I think, a lot of deliberation on the early part of the church. What does Jesus really mean in those six verses of John and then trying to. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point to make is that they didn't create this doctrine out of thin air uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, they were smoking some funny cigarettes and one day decided to come up with this. Yes, people uh, do uh, justify their viewpoints from Scripture, sometimes legitimately and sometimes illegitimately. I, I know you're not advocating transubstantiation. You probably would be crucified here if you were. But, you know, the fact of the matter is Protestants and Catholics almost inevitably have a scriptural justification for what they do. So do the snake handlers. Uh, they have a scriptural uh, passage they can turn to. The fact of the matter is, is that if you look at the whole doctrine of transubstantiation, you would realize that it, that it was a doctrine that was uh, a lot of controversy about it. And it only came along as a doctrine so until about the 12th, 13th century. Uh, before that, Many people uh, inclined that way, uh, but it wasn't official church dogma until about the 12th century. So you have 1,200 years where that was not official doctrine. And there, was, there were a number of prominent persons who disputed that within the church itself. But that's helpful to realize, yes, they believed. 
that there that there, there was biblical justification uh, uh, for their doctrine. Uh, but I don't think that says a whole lot because everybody does that and on both sides of every issue. Right, but the, just the words of Jesus are so literal there and the fact that a lot of people said this teaching is too hard who can listen to it. I'm, I'm sure the Roman Catholics really grapple. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think we need to impugn the integrity of people. Uh, that that's not appropriate. Uh, the only thing I'm trying to get at, primarily, without making a judgment per se, is that Luther rejected it uh, as absurd. Now, it's interesting that although he rejects transubstantiation. He holds a view not all that far from it, in in some senses. So, I mean, he Luther is very much of a realist in terms of the real presence. So, anyway, was there was there a comment? Yeah. What's the name of Luther's view? And then he is consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. Did he outline it in this article right here? No, actually. Uh, Luther relies upon a view that he, this is a view that is probably derived from William of Ockham. Uh, The interesting thing is he never uses this term to describe his own view. There's a little bit of fuzziness around uh, Luther and consubstantiation uh, because he doesn't articulate it fully under that title. Luther is not a systematic theologian. He hits and he shoots, you know, as he goes along. So if you want to find out what he believes, you have to go to different places and sort of put everything together. So he's a little hard to handle at certain points. But let me tell you what he said, what he believed. And we it's generally understood that he held to consubstantiation. At least he felt it was uh, more valid than transubstantiation. If you look at transubstantiation, the traditional view... Uh, the substance of the elements are absolutely changed and so that Christ is really, literally there. He takes a view called consubstantiation, derived probably from Occam, in which he says that the real, that Christ is really present. Substantially is the key word. Substantially present in with and under. Note those words. In, with, and under the elements. The difference is the elements themselves are not changed, but Christ is present in a substantial way. So, really, Luther is very much of a conservative compared to Zwingli and, and others. And, and you, you no doubt are aware that there was a great meeting in 1529 between Luther and Zwingli. And Luther takes, in some ways, uh, the viewpoint uh, that John is, is, this is my body. And Luther takes that very, very literally. Although he doesn't, that passage doesn't compel him to affirm transubstantiation, but it does compel him to affirm a, uh, a a real substantial presence of Christ. Sorry, sorry to show my ignorance. As a non-Presbyterian here, but what is the Presbyterian view of that sacrament in terms of presence? Well, a real spiritual presence. Uh, we 
you're looking at Calvin's view, for example, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit lifts us up into the spiritual, the real spiritual presence of Christ, but it's a spiritual kind of presence. Through the, um, through the Holy Spirit. The, uh, the, the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Yes. Right. Right. One of the things that it's it's appreci- not often appreciated about Calvin is how much he emphasized the Holy Spirit. And that is nowhere more obvious than in his understanding of the sacraments. At any rate, the view attributed to Luther that is uh, generally reflective of his view is this what's called real substantia- uh, sub- consubstantiation. The real body and blood of Christ, although invisible, are in, with, and under the elements. They do not become the elements. Christ himself does not. So there is the difference. So he rejects the traditional doctrine of transubstantiation, offers something else up. Third, he rejects the sacrifice in the Mass. He rejects the sacrifice of the Mass. According to the traditional Roman Catholic view, because there is a transubstantiation, Christ is re-sacrificed every time the Eucharist is celebrated. Really and literally. A real re-sacrifice. Again and again and again and again. And Luther was very polemical at this point. He argued that Christ's sacrifice was once for all. It's a non-repeatable event. And so he really goes after this idea of a re-sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. He also addresses the question of baptism. Uh, In general... He has a basic agreement with Rome in that baptism for him is very closely associated with regeneration. Uh, Generally, Luther would have held to a baptismal regeneration kind of view. Uh, If you ask him, how does that apply to infants? Luther has some rather peculiar uh, notions. At one point, he talks about the seed of faith and that an infant could have a sort of faith and therefore be justly baptized. Or he will at times talk about the vicarious faith of parents in baptism. He also talks about the number of sacraments, which had always been seven. Luther Actually, in this work, he mentions uh, three sacraments and then later two. Uh, but he, he limits the sacraments basically to baptism and the Lord's Supper, although there are some hints that he also accepts early on a doctrine, a, a sacrament of penance. Certainly not the traditional Roman Catholic view that, that I've described to you last time, but a, a kind of penance. Now, it appears that that pretty much falls by the wayside after a while. So it's generally understood that he held to two sacraments, although there was a period where there is some question as to whether or not he held to some sort of sacrament of penance. Luther closes this work, the Babylonian captivity, with these words. I hear a report 
that fresh bulls and papal curses are being prepared against me, by which I am urged to recant or else be declared a heretic. If this is true, I wish this little book to be part of my future recantation. He's saying, shove it. (laughs) In other words... Freedom of the Christian man. There is a... I'm sorry. I've always struggled with um, Augustine, and now you say Luther as well, with the idea of baptism and regeneration. When I see that in Augustine, how do they... I mean, he's so strong on justification by faith, etc. And then and then to hold to some kind of baptism and regeneration, I don't see how they can put it together. Well, I mean, two things to say about that is, if you read the New Testament... I can understand. I mean, there's, there's a pretty close association between regeneration and baptism. I think that, I mean, I would personally disagree that with a, a view of baptism and regeneration. But if you look at those passages, uh, they are, they're kind of close together and it makes people a little nervous. Okay? Uh, the second thing is, I would say, is that Luther was in many ways a conservative. Uh, he's moving and he's making some changes, but there's a real strong conservative side to Luther as well. Uh, he wants to, he, I mean, he wants to, to hold people back sometimes. I mean, he he unleashed a lot of radicals, and he was very much concerned about some of the things they were saying. So there there is a conservative element part of his character, and I think that may well, very well be reflected at this point on baptism. Is that no, as far as I know, he always held that. Well, nobody has. <laughs> Luther believed in paradoxes, uh-huh. uh, and, and I think it'd be unfair to think of him as a systematic theologian again. Luther is a guy who wrote. From the hip, I mean, he's he's he responds to particular situations or particular issues, and he doesn't very. In fact, even on justification by faith alone, I mean, his hallmark doctrine. If you want to study his view of that, you can't go to simply one work. You've got to normally, what you have to do is go to several works and draw all the the, the, the parts together. So he's not a systematic theologian, and when you're like that. Uh, you're open to the possibility of, of inconsistencies. So uh, I, I think that is, that's true, I think, of, of, of all theologians in general, but especially true of, of uh, Luther. One of the strange things is after these two works, which are, I mean, he is throwing down the gauntlet in the strongest way. And yet, the third book, The Freedom of the Christian Man, is an effort at reconciliation on the part of Luther. It's, it's rather odd. What happened is a papal delegate, Miltitz, M-I-L-T-I-T-Z, I think I've got that up there. A papal delegate went to Luther and said, you know what, you're, making, you're really creating a lot of problems here for yourself. Uh, why don't you write something that's a little more conciliatory to see if maybe Rome will come your way on these questions. And Miltitz asked Luther to make sure that he made it clear that he wasn't attacking a particular pope, but 
the papacy in general. As a result, Luther, in the midst of all these very strong writings, writes one of the most ironic treatises ever. He writes a generally ironic treatise about the freedom of the Christian man. It's certainly different in character from the previous two works. Ironic, peaceful. He's not trying to go for the juggler, jugular vein. Several things that, that he does mention, however, he wants to point out in this work uh, that good works, that the good works of unbelievers amount to nothing, that in fact the good works of unbelievers are nothing other than damnable sins. I mean, he hasn't become completely ironic in all of this. And that Christians, he says, are not freed from the responsibility of doing good works. Now, Luther, of course, was accused of throwing good works out. And this one of the values of this particular writing is to suggest, is to show us, that Luther felt good works were very important, but they were not the cause of justification, but a consequence of true justification. Sounds very straw to me. Say that? Sounds very straw to me. At any rate, the Christian is not free from his obligation to do good works. It just is a consequence of justification. One of the things I probably should mention to you too, talking about this ironic uh, treatise in the midst of all this polemical stuff, is that Luther, uh, up toward the end of his life, was willing to at least half-heartedly support the efforts of his first lieutenant, Philip Melanchthon, to seek out reconciliation with Rome. Up to the very last, Luther, at least half-heartedly, was willing to give his support to Melanchthon, who would go and then try to uh, work something out with the Roman delegates. I mean, we know in 1541, the so-called Diet of Regensburg was an extraordinary meeting. probably don't hear much about it in the history books. But Melanchthon, representing Luther, met in Regensburg, met with a number of Catholic uh, theologians and cardinals, the, the most uh, important of whom was Cardinal Contarini. They met, and amazingly enough, they came to an agreement on justification by faith alone. Now, they had to do a little bit of a, of a, of a, a double justification. Uh, Melanchthon was willing to agree that uh, justification was by faith alone, uh, but that that required a a change in the person too. So there was a bit of a compromise on the part of Melanchthon here, but also a big compromise on the part of the Catholics, Contarini. Now, Contarini represented that reform movement within Catholicism. And so you get an official agreement on justification in 1541. <laughs> anyway, 1541. <laughs> the problem, the reason this uh, 
treaty, this agreement fell apart, was they couldn't agree on the Eucharist. That's the point at which there was a break. Uh, that same, at the end of that same year, early the, the 1542, uh, Contarini died. And when he died, the heart of that reform movement within Catholicism died out as well. That's when, the same year is when a, a very interesting chap died in Italy by the name of Juan Valdez, which you don't, not the coffee bean picker, <laughs> but another very interesting figure who was uh, ministering to cardinals and bishops and all kinds of, of uh, upper echelon kinds of people, uh, teaching them justification by faith alone. And some of those people were actually converted to that viewpoint, but they still couldn't bring themselves to leave the only church. But once Contarini died and Valdez died, then the real heart of that internal reform movement just petered out. Luther had uh, written a number of other works in 1520 treatises, one of which was uh, in June of 1520 entitled On the Papacy at Rome. And there he specifically calls Pope Leo X the Antichrist. So whatever ironic mood he had been in earlier, that was all gone now. 1520, same year. Leo X. Well, not surprisingly, after these, these blasts from Luther, the Pope issues the bull Exerge Domine, which is the first phrase taken from Psalm 74. Psalm 74, I think verse 22 actually, which reads, Rise up, O Lord, and vindicate thy cause, for a wild boar has invaded the vineyard of the church. Guess who the wild boar was in this bull, Exerge Domine, Luther. The papal bull, Exerge Domine, did I spell that for you? Yes. E-X-S-U-R-G-E Domine. Rise up, O Lord. The papal bull gave Luther 60 days to recant. Or else. What did Luther do? He threw a party and burned the papal bull publicly. Again, an act of incredible boldness. And so in the 60 days we were up in January of 1521, Martin Luther was officially excommunicated. June, Jan, excuse me, January 1521. January 1521, he was officially excommunicated from the church. And then comes the Diet of Worms. The thing that Frederick the Wise anticipated in 1519 that Luther might very well be brought to trial happened. The emperor called Luther to come and to give an account of himself in April 1521. April 1521 the Diet of Worms. Charles V said, Luther, I want you to come and I'll give you a safe conduct. Basically, that meant that 
no soldiers of Charles V would molest Luther. He would be able to come and to leave uh, in a given period of time. Uh, and again, Charles V kept his promise that he made a couple of years earlier to Frederick the Wise that if a trial was going to be held about Luther, that it would be held on German soil. And this was much to Luther's advantage. And Frederick the Wise's advantage. Now, even though he was granted a safe conduct, it was still a very scary situation for Luther. Because just, what is it, about a hundred years before, Jan Hus had been called to the council of, I can't remember, Constance, to give an account of his heretical views, given a safe conduct. And when he was found to be a heretic, they forgot the safe conduct they had given him and burned him at the stake. Luther knew very well what had happened before. And so for Luther to go to the Diet of Worms, even though he was given a safe conduct, was an act of great boldness. Luther knew that there was a real possibility that the safe conduct would not be honored and that he would lose his life. And he went, nevertheless. On the way, and again this says something about the wisdom of placing this trial in Germany, all along the way, the crowds come out just like but there was people just praised him all the way to uh, all the way to, to the trial and Charles V heard about this stuff and he wasn't really pleased that Luther got more of an applause and more praise than he did well you've got to appreciate the situation it is extraordinary Charles V the most powerful man in the world. You have papal legates, representatives from the Pope. You have archbishops and, and bishops and cardinals all around, up highly elevated in this great room in Wittenberg. And Luther is brought in and he stands in front of the most powerful people in the world. Wittenberg or Worms? Worms, I'm sorry, Worms. So you've got to appreciate uh, how small he must have felt as he faced uh, his accusers. It's a truly a David and Goliath kind of situation. The emperor... Did the Pope think about coming? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, forget the Pope to leave. Is I mean, this is actually a secular trial at this point. He's already religiously been found a heretic. And now once that happens, it now becomes the job, the responsibility of the secular arm, Holy Roman Emperor, to deal with and to impose the consequences. So know that the Pope would not necessarily, would not be there in this case. Interestingly enough, the Emperor was advised, don't let Luther speak. He is too persuasive. So what happens is, Luther is ushered into this room surrounded on these elevated chairs all around him. And someone points to a book, to tables with books on them. And they say, are those yours? Luther looks at them and he can tell they are his and he acknowledges them. 
And then he is asked, will you recant what you have written? And Luther begins to try to say, well, you know, let's, let's talk about this. No, he is not permitted to defend himself or to articulate his position at all. He is simply said, told, you must either recant or no. And then Luther does what is really extraordinary. All this boldness, walking into the jaws of the lion. He asks for a postponement so he can think about it. He says, apparently trembling, this matter touches God and His Word. I beg you, give me time. And Charles V permitted him 24 hours to think about how he would answer the question, will you recant what you have written? Luther returned to his rooms in Worms and devoted himself to intensive prayer and study, seeking the counsel of his friends. Later on, Luther... Luther that could be a funny mistake. Luther... Reflecting back on this, this 24-hour period, said there was one question that really plagued him more than anything else. And it was this question. Am I alone wise? Here you have a, a single individual with a relatively small following in terms of people who are actively supporting him. He's got a lot of popular support, but uh, people who are willing to put their necks on the line seem to be relatively small at this point. And he has to ask himself, am I against the church, against the centuries that have gone before? Am I a single person? Am I smarter? Am I wiser than everybody else? And he said he wrestled very, very hard with that question. Am I alone wise during that 24-hour period? The next morning, he returned to uh, the emperor's uh, lodgings and then he gave his great here I stand speech when asked would he recant what he had written in those books on that table over there Luther makes one of the most powerful statements in church history he said unless I am persuaded by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason then I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Very interesting and a very strong statement. As soon as he made that statement, the Spanish guards in the room began shouting out, To the flames! To the flames! But Charles V honored his safe conduct and Luther was permitted to leave. I think he had 21 days for that safe conduct to be in effect. I think I said to you earlier before that I thought Charles V was a man of, of enormous integrity. And this may be one of the points at which that integrity is most clear. Uh, everyone in the room 
was convinced that Luther deserved death. He was a heretic and he had defied not only the church, but the emperor. It had happened before where an emperor decides, this is just, this guy is just so bad, I am not going to honor that safe conduct. But he did. And I think that speaks well of the integrity of Charles V. Well, off he goes. And then something else happened. Very interesting. He hadn't gotten too far. He's in a wagon, hobbling along on this road, and suddenly five horsemen ambush his wagon. And they drag him out. They plunge out of the forest and drag Luther out of the wagon. And he must have thought, he must have thought, well, this is it. Somebody has gotten so irate, they just decided to, to kill me. Well, it turns out that Frederick the Wise had sent five of his soldiers to intercept the wagon and protect Luther against someone who might try to assassinate him. And so Luther was whisked off to the Wartburg Castle. Twenty-one days after. That's as long as the, the safe conduct would last. So whatever he did with that time was was his own. But when the twenty-one days was up, here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know if I told you this, but um, well, I can't see it. But Luther was declared officially an outlaw. This is a secular trial. And what that mean to be what that meant to be declared an outlaw meant that anybody could kill you by any means whatsoever. Uh, by hook or crook, there was a price on his head. And the amazing thing about Luther is he lived from 1521 to 1546 with a price on his head. He was a declared outlaw of the state as well as a heretic. Furthermore, if anybody helped him, they were subject to losing all their property as well as their life. So to be declared an outlaw was a very serious business and it was intended to discourage anyone from helping you. But Frederick the Wise, and we don't know exactly why, felt duty-bound to protect Luther. And so he whisked Luther off to the Wartburg Castle. And in fact, interestingly enough, Frederick didn't even know where he was. He had instructed these five men to take Luther to an unknown to a location unknown to Prince Frederick. So that Frederick, if he if asked, could say, I don't know where Luther is. At least that's the rumor. Anyway, at the Wartburg, uh, Luther then became Knight George, where he dressed as if he were a knight in armor, grew a beard, and had a sword on his side, had a lot of time on his hands. And being a very energetic sort of person, Luther translated the New Testament into German. Knight George translated the New Testament into German. 
And uh, this, of course, was one of the great pivotal events in the Reformation period. Because this was following through with some of the things he had said in the 1520s. That there, that lay people could understand the Bible and had a right to access to it. So this is a major, major event. Now, of course, he, he piggybacks on the work of Erasmus. Uh, but Erasmus didn't translate the Bible into the language of the people. Luther did. And that is a crucial event. You'd know about that. Uh, and it is interesting as well that, that Erasmus had always talked about the importance of having the Bible in the language of the people. So even Erasmus had talked about that and had encouraged it, even though he actually didn't do it himself. That was left to Luther. And uh, it, it, it created... I mean, that's one of the ways in which the movement really got moving as well. People, even those who... I mean, not everybody could read, of course, but there were some. And more people could read German than they could Latin in Germany. And they would... Some people who could read would then preach it to other people and read it to other people. About 1450-60. So this is... We're talking now in the last 50 or 60 years was a printing press. And early on, it wasn't used all that much. It took a while for this thing to get cranked up. But by this time, uh, it's a very important means of distributing Luther's ideas. So Frederick get the uh, publication of the Bible or whatever? How did, how did his works get from Warburg Castle to... I don't know the specific answer to that. I'm just sure that I mean there were there were a number of publishers throughout. But they knew that Luther was out there somewhere. Yes, I mean I don't I don't uh, I don't think it was published in that period while he was in the in the Wartburg. That's when he did the translation himself, and once he got out, then he got it published. Because he wasn't in there all the time. He was there for about 18 months, I believe, and it really is an extraordinary feat what he did. He also, while in the Wartburg, wrote uh, a treatise on monastic vows. And again, he is saying that monks do not have to keep their vows of celibacy. And as a result of uh, his writing on monastic vows and rejecting monastic vows, throughout Germany, nuns and monks are fleeing monasteries and nunneries all over the place. In the spring of 1522, Luther returned to Wittenberg. And there he personally took leadership of the Reformation. And it's really in 1522 that, that Luther really gets this thing moving in, in its most extreme form. At one point, Charles V says to Frederick, Why are you protecting an outlaw? It was pretty clear after a while that somehow uh, Frederick the Wise is involved in protecting Luther. And Frederick is reported to have replied, He is my subject, and I owe him protection. So Frederick, whether out of a sense of duty or out of religious conviction, nevertheless... Uh, protected Luther at the most vulnerable point in his life just immediately after he'd been declared an outlaw. And just at the same time when you would have expected 
1521, 1522, when, when he's just been declared an outlaw, that that'd be the point at which somebody would get to Luther. And it's just at that point that Charles V, who is so concerned about the Turkish threat on his eastern borders, leaves Germany to raise an army in Spain to fight the Turks. So the main figurehead who would have been, had the power, perhaps, to deal with this Luther just at that moment turns his attention to a more pressing concern, namely his eastern borders. And Luther uh, is given a little bit of breathing room for the next several years. One of the great moments in all of church history when Luther faces down the powers that be and I just I love the picture of the great bold Luther when immediately asked, "Are those your books? Yes. Will you recant? Well, give me a while to think about it." Uh, it's 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 a little moment of of uh, perhaps a little weakness in a man who is otherwise incredibly bold. Uh, there's a humanity uh, to Luther. But he comes back fortified with prayer and study and having consulted with some of his friends, comes back fortified with, with a boldness and says, here I stand. One of the great and encouraging kinds of, of moments in history. I hope that kind of, of character uh, is encouraging to you in your own faith. It is to me. And then God in His wonderful, humorous way uh, kidnaps Luther, uh, not by his enemy, but by, by his friends are the ones who are responsible for the kidnapping. My wife often talks about providential humor. And I dare say that you and I both have all, have all seen examples of that. Uh, this to me is one of those wonderful examples of providential humor. Certainly, uh, once Luther discovered that he, these were friends and not foes, uh, must have been a, a time for to hoist a few beers. Uh, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you guys are on my side. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures, and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.